Jesus, amen. Good morning, everybody. Do we have any Beethoven fans in the house today? I'm actually surprised. I'm talking about Beethoven, the guy from the 1800s who was a composer. That Beethoven. I'm, I'm surprised by that reaction. Like, I didn't imagine that on the way over to church you were bumping like Fur Elise or like Moonlight Sonata. So I'm, I'm actually taking it back. I need a minute to gather myself. But there's clearly some Beethoven fans in the house. Um, if you're not a fan of his music, uh, even if you're not, I would bet that you've heard of Symphony Number no. 5 in C minor. I'm going to take you at your word, right? I'm, if you haven't, hold on, 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 hold on. We got to build up to this, right? Symphony Number no. 5 in C minor is regarded as one of the most popular classical pieces ever. This is so iconic. Like, you don't even have to listen to classical music to know this, this piece. So if you haven't heard this piece before, team, could you play it really quick? Let's go. That's good, that's good. That's the beginning of Beethoven Symphony Number no. 5 in C minor. Those four notes are some of the most iconic notes in all of music. And if you've never listened to the entire symphony, it's about 36 minutes, and no, it's not those four notes playing in repeat for 36 minutes. Um, he actually sets it up in four movements, so four different parts. And it's a journey, honestly. On your way back from church to home, listen to it, right? It's four different movements, and throughout the, the composition, there are periods where it's like lively, right? The chords are major and everything sounds cheerful and uh, vibrant. And then there's parts of the composition where it's very moody, right? They're using minor cards, chords, so they're very dark. But throughout this composition, those four notes show up throughout the entire time. They always come up, right? It, it, we could be in you know, movement number three, and it just rears its head in a way that you didn't expect it, but throughout the entire composition, it's, it's always coming up, it's always coming up. This is called a, mo a musical motif. Right? It's, it's an idea, an expression, a phrase that shows itself up throughout a composition. In a way, it kind of centers the listener, it brings him back in as, as, a, as the composer's telling the story, and, and that's what Beethoven is doing here, right? He, he drops this motif, these four notes, throughout this entire composition so that you come back to this idea, this expression that he has. And a lot of music has musical motifs. As we look at the last passage of this series through the Old Testament, we're actually going to be looking at one of the prevailing motifs in all of Scripture. Right? God wrote this book. This is his story. This is his narrative. And there are certain ideas, certain themes that you see always come up over and over again. We see it throughout this entire series. We see it as we continue to read through the word. But this idea is always there. It's there in seasons where the, the characters of the Bible are going through tough times and seasons of rejoicing. This idea is always showing up. 
this motif is all throughout scripture. What is the motif we're talking about here as we wrap up the series? This idea is that God is faithful to his people and he always keeps his promises. If you black out for the next 25 minutes or fall asleep, leave today with that simple phrase in your head. God always is faithful to his people and he always keeps his promises. We're going to see that as we look through this last passage. And if you've been paying attention throughout the series, it has shown up a couple of times. So we'll look at that. But as we look at this theme, what do we learn about who God is? What do we learn about his character? And then ultimately, as his people, his church, his new Israel, what does that mean for us? So, God is faithful to his people and always keeps his promises. Let's read today's scripture in Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, sorry, I read way faster than I see, um, or I see much faster than I, than I read it. So let's start over again. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put into writing. Thus said Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings that is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the house, the heads of the father's house of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone who spirit God had stirred up to go rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were with them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the Lord, or the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, that's a baby name inspiration, the <laughs> prince of Judah, and this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All of the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,500. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. 
God, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would, you would give us ears to hear, God, what you're trying to speak to us, Lord. Thank you that you are a God who is faithful and you are a God who keeps his promises to his people. So we ask that you would fill us with hope as we read your word, as we see your character, and as we see how you weave this idea throughout our stories and your greater story. In Jesus' name. So just some background, right? We know Tiff preached last week about how God was going to pronounce judgment on the people of Judah because their sin was great. And they weren't repentant about their sin. Right? They, they indulge in their sin. They approve of the sin of the, the cultures around them. They were like all in on it. And they were warned several times over the years from God's prophets. Yet, they ignored them, they ignore the prophets, and they continue into their sin. So what God does is this people that he's elevated, that he's given an incredible story and name and renown to, he lays waste to their entire city and the temple of God. So this place that God has elevated them, he just pretty much cut them down. And what happens is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, invades Judah, and then he takes captive the people of Judah. And God, through Jeremiah, has prophesied that this captivity, this exile from their home is going to last 70 years. And this is not... This is not a, a time of joy for them. This is a very hard time. Right? They're in a land that's foreign to them. They're away from their home. They have the disgrace of their culture, their name, being completely destroyed. If you read the Book of Lamentations, you'll, you'll see there are several poems in that book where the people of Israel cry out to God on behalf of their city, on behalf of the temple that's been ruined because of their sin. This period of exile is, is hard, and it's long. But we see here, because God is faithful and he keeps his promises, God doesn't forget about this, these people right in exile. God shows that through what he's going to work out in this story, that he's absolutely in control. He is 100% sovereign. There's nothing that, God, that happens that God is surprised by, that he's just, you know, scrambling in heaven to, to fix the situation. There's absolutely nothing happening that's out of his control, that's out of his permission. And we see that here in this story, right? We look at that first verse, right? In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the, that the word, that word is so important. I don't know why I keep skipping it, right? That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. God spoke a word through Jeremiah for this people. And he alone initiates these events in order to fulfill this word. God stirs up the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia. That time is probably the leader of the, the greatest nation, the greatest army of the world. And in order to enact this plan to return the people of Judah back to their home, he stirs up his heart, 
the heart of the ruler of the world. God is sovereign. God moved through the, the enemy of Israel to enact his plan to return, to enact his promise to return his people out of exile back to their home. We see that God also works in the heart of, peop- of the people, who are in, people of Judah who are in exile to get up and go back home. It's interesting that not everyone who is, who is brought into exile and captivity is actually stirred to go back to Jerusalem. Not everyone goes. Only certain people go. And then we see the others who would like to stay, they supply those who are leaving back to Jerusalem with the tools and supplies needed to rebuild the temple. So we see throughout this account that God is working through Cyrus the ruler. He's working through the people of Judah who actually returned back to Jerusalem and the people who are still in Babylon. When God sets something in motion, when he sets a promise in motion, a plan in motion, everyone follows suit. Everyone follows suit. Even when we disobey, even though when we rebel, God still is, is faithful to carry out his promise because he's sovereign, which means he's in control. That's what gave these people hope in a very hard time. That's what gives us hope as his people today. As we go through our own trials, as we go through our own tribulations, our, our circumstances, we know that God is in control. That's what gives us hope. That's what carries us. The fact that nothing happens that's outside of his permission. Nothing happens to his people that's out of his purview. He's not surprised. Either he's working it or if it's happening, it's because he's allowing it to happen. That gives us hope as his people that we are in good hands that we are not forgotten in, in our periods of exile in our lives. God is sovereign. God is in control. The next thing we see here, and this is something that we actually saw earlier in the series, is the fact that God uses unconventional means to carry out his promises. It would, it would seem that, all right, God's people have been taken into captivity, they're exiled in the land that's not theirs. How does God fulfill this? How should God fulfill this promise to return them back to their land, to restore them? It would make sense that, like, God is going to raise up an army somehow, and they're going to overthrow the the leader of the world, and they're going to ransack him, and they're going to, you know, kill their enemies, defeat them, and then they're going to march back to Jerusalem and triumph. That's what Sounds like what it makes sense, right? Like if you're hearing this promise, I'm going to return you back to your home. If I'm, if I'm someone who's in Judah, who's in captivity, that's what I'm thinking. And it's not crazy to think that because we see God do that already in the history of Israel. We see how he carries them out of Egypt by his hand, by the 10 plagues, by ultimately defeating Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. We see how God does that in a very active way that is that is the, the, the talk of the world. Everyone talks about that. 
But in this situation, we don't see God doing that. God is not moving in a way that you would expect him to. Instead, he's moving through Israel's enemy at that time. And just some background around Cyrus and why this is unconventional. So Cyrus is, Cyrus pretty much from the time he's taken the throne of Persia, he, in 15 years, he's led his conquest to the point where he's taken over neighboring cities and countries. He's taken over Babylon in 15 years. He is the great conqueror of the time. As he says in the scripture, right, the Lord has given him all the nations. It's true. He was conquering the lands around him. He was so successful in his conquest that he dubbed himself the king of the universe. The king of the universe, right? That's, that's kind of wild, right? That's how successful he was. And when you conquer people, when you lead conquests, you don't let them go, right? You, you don't free them and send them back to their land. They're in your control. They're in your power. They're, in, they're part of your kingdom. They do what you say. Yet, through this individual, this is how God actually uses, or this is how God enacts his, his promise to return the people of Israel to exile. We look at some of the stories that we've gone through in this series, and we see God, like, again, Abraham, the most unlikely person to build a nation that outnumbers the stars, to build a nation that blesses the, the world forever, chooses Abraham. We look at David, you know, as Johnny preached, the most unlikely person in his family. This is who God says, you're gonna be the king of Israel and I'm gonna establish your throne forever. God uses very unlikely, very unconventional ways to carry out his promises. And he does that for several ways. Sometimes we don't know why he does it. In this case, we can see that he uses this way to operate and carry out his promises because he wants to demonstrate his power and sovereignty. This is, the, again, the, the, the king of the universe. Yet, it is God who has given him all the nations that he rules over. Yet, it is God who uses him to carry out his promises. God uses the things that don't make sense all the time so that we see that he's all-powerful. Right? It's, it's like... All, like five of us in this room joining the Knicks, right, and taking them to the championship, right, and, and, like, and finally winning, right? It's going to happen, right? It would be crazy if Charles Dolan grabbed the five of us from this room and said, all right, this, this is the squad I'm going with, and we actually win. It would be crazy. Yet God uses the things that are foolish to shame the wise and to show his power, his authority, he also does it so that we have no opportunity for pride. This is a king who is full of himself, that he calls himself the kings of the universe. When God moves in our lives in ways that we don't expect to fulfill his promises, it's so that we can look back and say, wow, I had nothing to do 
I have nothing to do with that. Right? Like Johnny preached, God is carrying us. It's, it's not us making this happen to fulfill his promises. He's doing it. And we have no opportunity to say, oh, it's by my effort. It's by my hand. It's all God. It's all God. God moves in ways that we don't understand, that are unconventional, so that we can look back and say, yes, you are sovereign. Yes, you are in control, and I had nothing to add to you, what you've done. That's, that's what it means to be his people. To know that he covers us, he keeps us, he fulfills his word to us, and we contribute nothing. That should make you feel good, right? <laughs> it's like, I'm with, I'm with him, right? <laughs> I'm with him. How'd you, how'd you get there, right? Like, I'm with him. He's carrying us. That's what it means to be his people. He shows his faithfulness to us in that way. And then I think one of the, the hardest realities of this, this idea that God is faithful to us, always keeps his promises, is that sometimes these promises are delayed. Sometimes they happen right away, right? God says, I'm going to cover you, I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to protect you, insert whatever promise of God, and it happens right away. A lot of times it doesn't. We're talking 70 years in exile, 70 years of captivity, 70 years of longing to be home, longing to be restored to your land, longing to see the temple rebuilt. 70 years. And when it finally happens that it's time to go back home, what are you going home to? You're going home to ruin. You're going home to shame. You're going home to hardship. You're not going home to glory. The exiles who are returning are not going back to, to renown. They're going to rebuild. And as they rebuild, the thoughts, the memories of their sin, of their rebellion, stays with them as they rebuild brick by brick. If we look through, again, our series, the different passages that we've covered, we look at God's promise to Adam and Eve. Eve's offspring will crush the head of the serpent after the serpent bruises his heel. That doesn't happen until centuries later in the coming of Christ in Christ defeating sin, death, our enemy. That doesn't happen until centuries after. If we look at Abram, this promise that his, his, from him, all the nations will be blessed, that his offspring will outnumber the stars. He doesn't even see that. We look at David, when David is anointed to be king of Israel, He's not just flown up to the, the palace after that. It takes 14 years. God's promises are often delayed. And that's a hard reality. It's a hard reality as we lament in our current trials, in our current struggles. It's a hard reality as we, his people, long for him to return 
for him to make everything right, to get rid of sin, to get rid of death, to get rid of our enemy once and for all, it's a hard reality. But the truth of that reality is that he is always faithful to carry out that promise. His promise is always sure. It's always sure. We look at creation. Christ has come. The serpent is, 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 his head is crushed. One day he will be finished off forever. We are the nation that God's talking about for Abram. Right? Every single person sitting in this room. Again, now we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We are that new Israel. We are the promise fulfilled after a very long time in some situations. They're sure. His promises are sure. So as we, as we look at this, this idea that, God, you are faithful, and you are always faithful to keep your promises. God, you are sovereign. You are always in control. God, you, you work in ways I don't understand and I can't take credit for. And God, sometimes when you promise, when you are at work, I don't, I don't see the results of that right away. I don't see that executed right away. Sometimes I have to wait. As we look at that idea, as that theme, as, as we see it play out in our lives and throughout the story, how should we respond to God? If this is true, if, if it's true that God is faithful and he's faithful to keep his promises to us, how should we respond to him as his people? There are two ways I think of. So the first is we hold dear to his promises. We hold on tight. We cling on to them. And I have to share a disclaimer. We have been sometimes, again, out of, it's sometimes out of ignorance, sometimes out of, honestly, just people's evil intentions. We have been told promises that God is going to deliver to us that are not promises that God has given. Our cultures, we see that, we see that honestly from pastors. And I struggle to say that. God is going to bless you. God does not want you to be sick. God doesn't want you to be poor. God is going to do whatever you ask him. Just ask him. It's in his will. Follow the desire of your hearts. God's going to give it to you. Those are not promises of God. If you're holding on to a promise that God has not said, you're going to be disappointed. I can't tell you how many times I've heard stories of people who say, I can't trust God. How could I trust God? He didn't save my loved one. I lost my job. I'm sick now. There are people hungry in the world. God said this. God said that. Did God say that? If we're going to hold on to God's promises, we need to be sure that we are getting that from his word. Not, not from a dream, not from your, your favorite mega church pastor. If it doesn't come from God's word, 
It's not his promise. I had a situation where I grew up in a church. It was, it was wild, right? Um, the God told me edicts were like rampant, right? Um, one of the leaders in the church pretty much paired up the whole youth group and said, God told me you're going to marry this person. God told me you're going to marry that person. I got told I was going to marry someone. And this is someone I didn't even like. <laughs> I didn't even like her. Why am I supposed to marry this person? Through manipulation, through control, this entire youth group was utterly destroyed by these promises. When I told my mom that I was supposed to marry so-and-so, she was like, no, you're not. Why? Why are you going to marry this person? Well, they told me this and that, and they told me God told them. I mean, I wasn't going to marry her. Clearly, I did it. But my mom was like, you need to leave that church. If God has not told you through his word, you don't have to hold on to that promise. It would be foolishness to do otherwise. So that's a disclaimer. When I say we hold on to the promises of God, we hold on to the promises that he's revealed in the scripture. There are probably hundreds that I could go over right now, but I have two minutes. Actually, I'm over by like 30 seconds. But... This is important. This is important. <laughs> they, they are. Um, but, but I want to leave you with, I had two. I'll, I'll leave you with one. This is a promise that I hold on to for dear life as a Christian. I hold on to this promise because in my personal circumstances, in our personal circumstances, in our current corporate circumstances as God's people, life is hard. We're in exile. We, the people of God, his new Israel, we are in exile. We are in a home that is not ours. There's a home that Christ promises to us where we will be with him. We're not there yet. He's purchased it for us, but we're not there yet. And there are days when I'm like, God, you just need to wrap it up. Like, you need to crack the skies, and you need to bring us home. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired. We're tired. Sin is running rampant. Evil is all around. Your enemies are blaspheming you. Left and right, your people are being slaughtered left and right. Come back and right these wrongs. Bring us home. This is the promise in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. 
they will be his people. Do you long for that? He himself will be with them and they will be his, he, will be, he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things hath passed away. This is a promise I hold to you dearly. It's a promise I pray that God reminds me of every single day. that while we are in exile hill on earth, it won't be like this forever. There is a day coming where God will dwell with his people again. We started this series with Adam and Eve in God's presence in the garden. Our history, this story will end with us, with him forever. And as we go through the, the dark parts of, our, of the story, the, the joyous times of the story, this single idea, you will find it poking itself up over and over again that God is faithful to his people. God is faithful to keep his promises in all the ups and downs as he's weaving this story, that motif, that idea, we will continue to see it until what we just read is our reality. Hold on to God's promises for dear life because he's faithful. He's faithful to you He's faithful to his people. He's faithful to his word. So we thank you, God. This is your story that you have composed, that you are composing. And you want us to know through it all, through the story of Adam and Eve, through the story of David, through the story of Abram, through the story of the people of Israel, through the story of Zion Church, through the ups, through the downs. Resoundingly, you are saying, I'm faithful to you and I'm faithful to keep my promise. I have the power to do that and you can trust me. So we ask you, Lord, uh, that you would make this a reality in our hearts, that you would fill us with hope that one day we will be with you. We will be with you, you with us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up.